Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. If we are what we eat, we certainly ought to know what we will become. That may be the concept underlying what is coming to be known as community food security, energy-efficient food, and the slow food movement, which refers to the opposite of the fast food movement. Glenn McGordy, our guest today, is the Wine Growing and Plant Science Advisor affiliated with the University of California Cooperative Extension for Lake and Mendocino Counties here in Northern California. How can we assure ourselves that the food we eat is safe and nutritious and energy efficient? Well, I met with Glenn McGordy in the studios of Radio Curious and asked him those questions and to tell us about community food security, energy-efficient food, the slow food movement, and how to identify what food is best to buy. There's some real issues around this that have uh, been brought to public consciousness starting from probably the early to mid-1990s. And, of course, as we've gone through 9-11 and all the issues around homeland uh, security, obviously we can't last long without food. And there's there's a lot of things that, that people are concerned about uh, that, are, that we're addressing kind of in this movement. First of all, I'd like to point out I don't consider myself to be in the movement, but I'm, I'm quite aware of it, and I've participated in conferences before, and it's something that I think about. Well, what are some of these issues? The first thing is is obviously having a nutritious food supply. That's something that's of concern to everybody, whether you're talking conventional food or or uh, the community food security movement. The idea is that you want to put things in your body that are healthy for you. And I think the United States has done a great job of, of having – uh, a fairly safe food supply overall in that we don't see people dying too often from poisoning, obviously. And when but, we do, we hear about it. Yes, we certainly do. If anything uh, gets out of bounds, we, we know about it right away, uh, an outbreak of salmonella or E. coli or one of these other devastating kinds of foodborne diseases. But uh, the the issues that also come in is if you live in an urban area, uh, your food has to travel a great distance to get there. We, we talk about the average distance of food traveling close to 1,200 miles to get to your table. Which is quite amazing. In uh, China, it travels about 200 feet. Yes, well, and other places too. There, uh, you'll, you'll see in Europe uh, that people are more willing to support market gardeners and, and local agriculture. In fact, their social welfare system has taken a slightly different turn than the American social welfare system following World War II. They felt it was better to keep people in rural areas and pay them to keep working uh, on their farms as opposed to letting them let their farms go bottom up and then let them move to an urban area and be unemployed and support them to do nothing. So, When we talk about community food security now and that movement that's developing in the United States and to somewhat here in Mendocino County, what is it? What does that mean? It goes to, uh, along these lines, having access to food, very, very important in urban areas, again, because a lot of the uh, particularly low socioeconomic income areas, in, uh, they don't have supermarkets, and it's difficult to actually go shopping. You end up having to shop in convenience stores and and liquor stores and things like that. So that's a big issue in some communities. We're, we're lucky that's not the case here in Ukiah. We have lots of shopping Options, but in other places it's a concern. Uh, another concern is uh, again having uh, quality food at, at reasonable prices. 
And uh, another concern is is trying to link the consumers to producers more than than we do, of actually having a, a a sense of the source of your food, which I also am kind of concerned about. I don't know if you've if you've been shopping at a grocery store lately and you buy canned juice and you look at where is the juice from and you realize it could be from Florida, it could be from Brazil, it could be from China, and it's supposed to be labeled on the can. It isn't though. <laughs> so this is an example of of you know since we have differing standards in terms of of pesticide use and and sanitary practices and so forth that's one of my concerns about buying commodity food from other countries is that they may not have been uh produced under the kind of conditions that we would find acceptable when we buy food um and it doesn't say the source mm -hmm. um do is there a way of telling what the standards may be or what the source may be? No, there really isn't. This is one of the downsides of globalization. Globalization is brilliant as a business strategy, in that you know you try to maximize profits by holding down your labor costs and your materials costs. But it, it's you know if we're concerned about long term health, I like to know where my food comes from. I like to know under what standards they produce them. Um, I'd like to know if there's GMOs in it. I don't particularly think GMOs are necessarily really hazardous, but I'd like to know that, and I'd like people to be upfront about it. Um, and the, as consumers, we should have those options and rights. And what you find, actually, is that agribusiness and, and processors fight tooth and nail to make sure that you don't know. Um, because it, it, if people start saying, well, I want you know, my, my food from California and not from, from Texas, then it becomes a problem in distribution for them. So what is the average eater to do? Uh, uh, think locally and shop locally. <laughs> and that's one of the benefits of the community food security movement is that it really promotes that, including uh, things like having the local cafeterias and the school systems uh, buy their food locally when they can from local producers. We're seeing more of this. Uh, and in this case, I tend to think of local as being California. Uh, California has the most stringent standards in terms of pest pesticide residues, for conventionally produced agriculture, they have a strong farm worker safety program, which a lot of other states don't. And uh, I'm totally committed to California agriculture. Uh, Mendocino agriculture is even better because we have such a strong interest in organic uh, and biodynamic type agriculture, which puts a big emphasis on environmental quality, which is one of the things that I appreciate. But in terms of overall food sa safety, uh, California is head and shoulders above the rest of the planet on these issues. But still... If we were to buy our food from um, the chain supermarkets, mm -hmm. we really don't know where it came from. Yeah, I think that's that's right to a certain extent. You know, it's one of the things I routinely do, just uh, shopping at at, at uh, one of the, the supermarket chains. Or I always ask the produce guy if I see him, so, you know, what's good this week and where is it from? And they usually know because it's it's a certain extent. It's marked by the uh, the packer or the producer. But you have to dig a little bit if you're if you're buying in any of the chain uh, stores will be, to to find out where your food came from. There's no question about it, and that's why I like farmers markets when they're in season, is because then you know who your producers are. Uh, the, a certified farmers market requires uh, an identification uh, of the producer uh, to be from your region. When you ask the question, "What's good and where is it from?" What kind of response do you get? I usually get a pretty enthusiastic response because the produce managers know what's good. I mean, they're the guys handling it day to day, and they kind of know uh, from a quality perspective which stuff is really fresh and and 
they they have a sense over time of of what makes good produce and how they know is on the basis of what's turning over quickly and 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 what things are what we call high shrinkage and shrinkage in the produce business means that you're having to call the the display pretty often and that that's the things that gets thrown in the garbage basically because it's not moving or it's not good quality it's sort of falling apart sooner than it should so that's why the produce guy is worth talking to when you shop Glenn, let's talk about how food is produced and what it takes to produce the food, whether it's on a local level or on a uh, regional or even global level. Barry, one of the things that's really important is the level of energy that goes into producing uh, our food. And unfortunately, conventional agriculture and even organic agriculture to a certain extent is not energy efficient uh, from the perspective of it takes more calories uh, to, to produce the food than we get out of it. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as we have cheap, plentiful energy. But at some point, we've got to reckon with that, and we have to start looking at our efficiencies and distribution. When energy is cheap, it's very, very easy for us to uh, store and refrigerate things and ship them great distances. And it, it uh, that's part of our approach of being able to eat anything we want any time of the year and all we do is we put it on an airplane and fly it somewhere and charge a lot of money for it. So you can have asparagus in September in California, even though uh, asparagus season is normally January through March because it's been flown in probably from New Zealand or somewhere south of the uh, equator. So this is one of the long-term concerns that we have to kind of address. When we think about food averaging 1,200 miles to get to our table uh, nationally, that's kind of the number that's sort of bandied around that's a huge amount of energy for transportation. And if we think about the production of pesticides, the production of, of chemical fertilizers, all of those things require a lot of petrochemical input, a lot of calories uh, from the point of view of energy consumption. Whereas if we're, if we're producing food locally, we cut down the uh, energy uh, demands tremendously and the efficiencies may be five to six times higher than if we're refrigerating uh, food and shipping at 1,200 miles to get to the marketplace. How do you see that happening, considering the uh, habituation and the how people have been accustomed to having asparagus in September? Well, it's part of the of the slow food movement, which we haven't talked about yet, which we'll get into a little bit more in, in a minute or two. But the idea behind a lot of, of chefs now is that you should work on a seasonal basis in terms of the foods that you eat, or trying to eat in season. So uh, if you, you plan your uh, food consumption around a calendar rather than than more or less on an impulse of saying, gee, you know, it's September, but I see asparagus in the supermarket, so I'll just buy it. And first of all, you'll spend less money on your produce, and, and second of all, you'll probably get better quality produce because when you have to ship something halfway around the world, odds are they're going to be picking it a little bit on the green side, and uh, it's probably going to have been refrigerated in cold storage a little bit longer than if you uh, had picked it fresh at, at its peak and season in your, your part of the world. Well, again, speaking locally here in Mendocino County, yes, how would we uh, adjust to that? Um, now it's early January. Mm -hmm. uh, what foods are readily available that are grown locally either here or in California? Yeah, I think we have to think California more than here in Mendocino because we, we don't have a a huge agricultural uh, infrastructure capacity for a lot of the things that we like to 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 eat. 
uh, an interesting thing that's happened over the years is that once upon a time, Mendocino was probably pretty efficient in its food production because we didn't have any roads outside of the area. So you pretty much, what you had locally is what you ate. And, and we had a lot of diversity in our agriculture. Uh, if we go back 100 years, we had 150,000 acres of cultivated crops, uh, things like wheat and barley and and uh, uh, potatoes and and peas and things that were grown in quite a lot of quantities. But as the agriculture infrastructure developed in our uh, San Joaquin uh, Valley and the efficiencies were so much better there, then we saw agriculture start to disappear here in Mendocino. And now we have just a couple of specialized in- industries that produce a fair amount of, of food. Uh, so it, it's a problem, I guess, is the answer. Well, what... What then are the local foods that are grown uh, throughout California and available here? Well, we're lucky. When we when we expand our horizons to California, California is the top producer of about 250 commodities in the United States. So uh, really A to Z, you know, from uh, almonds to zucchini we produce here. So this time of the year, uh, we see citrus at kind of its peak. Uh, we're, we're seeing very good winter greens, um, all of the coal crops. They, they're they're really uh, at their peak of perfection kind of at this time. Uh, although this weather dependent, if we get into a series of storms and the farmers can't get into harvest, so you know then you're we're we're back to our problems of of uh, of having an, enough produce just simply because they can't ship and they can't move into their fields. I I think that uh, the other thing that allows us to really have a lot of uh, opportunities for for high quality food is a, a limited amount of processing through things like freezing and to a lesser extent canning um, you know that's the way that we allow ourselves to to have high quality food again being produced from California and California really is the state as it goes to to uh to fresh produce it's really everybody else pales by comparison we're producing about 80% of of United States is uh, fresh vegetables and fruits if we do get into the processing of freezing and canning, mm-hmm. that then broadens the uh, horizon from where food may come. Absolutely. From South America or anywhere around the world. Exactly right. Which contradicts the concept of the slow food movement mm-hmm. or the concept of energy efficiency. But how does that affect uh, food security? We start getting into the whole idea of importing food, and there's there's secondary issues that that occasionally uh, we run into problems with pesticide residues being one of them, and then uh, more a greater concern probably is the fact that we occasionally bring in some bacteria, something that uh, we've unsuspectingly have contaminated produce, and we've seen that uh, salmonella coming in on raspberries from Central America, and and also on green onions and. Every once in a while, we'll have a food poisoning outbreak. But if you look at the numbers, if you look at the number of food poisoning cases in the United States versus you know issues related to pesticides, you'll see food poisoning is of a much greater concern to the food industry as a whole. You know the the number of food poisoning cases runs into the millions, uh, whereas our pesticide poisonings are quite a bit less than that. If you look at the statistics, they're probably under a thousand cases a year where people are accidentally poisoned by food and pesticide residue. But don't we have the 
issue of uh, the cumu- accumulation exactly right of and that's pesticides. much more insidious because we don't really know how to how to read that there's two types of toxicities what we call uh, acute toxicity which is an immediate response to something and then chronic toxicity which is much longer and and again uh you know you that's when you start looking at uh things like statisticians being able to tell you what's going on with people's health and that's much more scary to to deal with because it's not something we can immediately sense or do anything about as well as the occasional person uh, who would have a, an acute reaction exactly like people who uh have a problem with peanuts, and thus peanuts are not served on airplanes anymore. Yeah, that's a good example. So uh, in in terms of food security for me, that's one of the things I worry about is we import uh, food from other places and other parts of the world. You're not sure where it's coming from. You don't know what their sanitary standards are. Uh, They certainly won't be as high as Californians. I I can assure you that because the food safety has been such a big issue in the state. Are there things that uh, we can do to... um, check the security or the sanitation of the food that we have um, so that we know that it meets the levels that are generally in place here in California, Mm -hmm. Uh, things that we could do to imported foods? Well, I think, again, looking for things that are certified organic is is helpful because there are international standards that have been set, uh, and they tend to to be agreed upon uh, between countries so that there's some level of standardization. And to the best of my knowledge, no organic certification allows things like GMOs, for instance. And they, in most cases, the organic certification is has a very narrow list of, of you know, pesticide products that can be used, and they tend to be natural pesticides. So, I, I think that that's one way of of trying to protect your health. In in part, is with uh, looking at things that are organically produced. At the beginning of our conversation today. You said that uh, you are not a member of the Community Food Security Program. That's correct. How come? Well, um, is, <laughs> just as a question of, of how, how much my attention gets diverted, uh, probably the people most active in California right now would be the UC Sustainable Ag Program. There's a, a woman named Gail Feenstra who works very closely with the community food security movement. And they've actually hosted conferences. They've invited me to speak before at the conferences. So the movement is, is definitely very uh, much in place in California. But it's just, again, it's just there's only so much so many hours in the day that I can devote my time to. That's what I was wondering. Is it a time issue or a priority issue? Probably a time issue more than anything. I, I work, of course, mostly with the wine grape industry here in Mendocino County, and I work very closely with the, the production of organic wine grapes and biodynamic wine grapes and trying to help our growers uh, be able to deal with the, the pest management issues that, that they have without uh, resorting to you know traditional chemical sprays. So, uh, again, I, I have an interest in, in the idea of environmentally sound agriculture is something that, that goes all the way back to my beginnings and, on the subject. How is organic wine or biodynamically grown wine different from wines that are grown that are not organic or mm-hmm. biodynamic? Well, of course, they have a code that they have to follow in terms of crop production that, that limits the kinds of materials that they can apply. And I think the philosophy is a little bit different, and it's starting to get a lot of play internationally now that people uh, who produce biodynamic or organic wines put a very big emphasis on on taking care of their soil. And there seems to be a very good case for wine quality related to soil quality. And I was very impressed the last time that I was in in, in France to see the list of biodynamic producers that, that are just in one region in Burgundy. Uh, one of the most famous 
vineyards and wineries there is Romani Conti. And this is the kind of wine that sells for four or $500 a bottle. And they're biodynamically farmed uh, and produced. And it, this seems to be a movement in terms of wine quality. What does it mean to be biodynamically farmed? It's very similar to organics, except it goes a little bit further in that it was a movement that was started by Rudolf Steiner, of course, is famous for the Waldorf schools and homeopathic medicine. And he he was a bit of a mystic and a seer, and he came and he was approached by some farmers in Germany that said, you know, we don't like the way our crops are going. This was in the 1920s. We don't like what's happening on our farms. What should we do? And he said, well, let me think about it, and I'll get back with you. And, and about a week later, he gave a series of lectures and laid out what he considered to be important. And I'll try to summarize it real quickly. What he said, basically, is that you need to think of your, your farm as being sort of a uh, an organism or a closed system, and you really have to focus on trying to provide everything you need uh, right within your own borders. This idea that you always Im- import inputs to make your farm uh, productive was something he was trying to to convince them not to do. So he was trying to get them off of the chemical fertilizers, instead rely on compost and cover cropping. Uh, He wanted to see plant and animal agriculture integrated as opposed to being separate enterprises. So, you know, you'd use uh, one field for pasture for several years and then you grow your crops in it. Um, You know, he really felt that animal impact on agricultural land was a very positive thing. And beyond that, where it, it kind of is a little bit different than organics, he made the point to everybody that there's cycles that we're all familiar with the, the the daily cycle of the sun going up and down and the early cycle. But he said there was all these other cycles that were happening too with, with the planets and uh, and the moon. And this is very controversial, but he, he felt that they, these cycles have an effect on how things grow. And to sort of uh, aid and assist with, with some of the cycles, he came up with a series of uh, bioregulator preparations, which are pretty bizarre in terms of of how they're supposed to work uh, that doesn't really fit into sort of our standard reductionist agriculture. So when you talk to, to people like me who are used to sort of randomized complete block test plot design and, and that's how we reach our conclusions, and instead Steiner was saying, well, take a cow horn and fill it with manure and you know bury it at the, the uh, fall equinox and then dig that up and spray small amounts and it'll affect plant growth uh, uh, next spring. I mean, that that's something that we, we get a little bit uncomfortable with. But from the point of view of an agricultural system, I can assure you biodynamics is a very sound way to, to grow a crop. Well, what more specifically is there to biodynamics than the example you just gave of filling the cow horn? I think there's a philosophy, too. Uh, biodynamic people uh, look at maybe a little bit more in awe of nature and a little bit more respect than a lot of farmers do. And as a group, farmers, even conventional farmers, have extraordinary respect for nature. Uh, Even people who use pesticides still know that they're pretty much at the whims of nature and that they depend on uh, on the biology of our planet to take care of them, to to keep them with a successful enterprise. But I think that in biodynamics, it gets almost to a point of spirituality or reverence that you don't see in other farming systems, which again is sort of conventional type approach of science to agriculture uh, tends to make us a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Most of us tend to do our praying in church and, you know, not out in the fields with our crops, which maybe that's that's how it should be. But um, this is the kind of reverence that I think that biodynamic agriculture shows for their way of farming. Glenn, let's get back to the slow food movement and the idea of producing things locally, uh, raising the quality, uh, and having food that tastes good. Well, it's, it's obviously... Uh, 
not a hard sell to most people. And it's just a question of having to rearrange your lifestyle a little bit to do that. One of the things that as I, th I think we have a weakness in the American culture is we're always so frantic about everything we do. Um, it's We really need to slow down a little bit and enjoy our lives more. And, and particularly, I think a lot of our, our issues around uh, being overweight has to do with the way that we consume food. Um, not that Europe is perfect, but what I like about European food compared to American food is very flavor intensive. When, when you eat in Italy, it's not that it's really fancy food that's prepared uh, exquisitely. It's that the food has uh, a lot of flavor, and it's not mass-produced, and it's not a commodity. Uh, the slow food movement was started in Italy uh, near the town of Bra in, in Premonte and near the town of Barolo. And the idea behind it was that people were just sort of offended that McDonald's was making all these inroads into Italian uh, food consumption, and they wanted to, to have some kind of a reaction, but they wanted a positive reaction. They didn't want to go close all the McDonald's down. They just wanted to remind people that they have a food tradition in Italy that's quite extraordinary. So, so the phrase slow food is the opposite of fast food. Exactly, in every sense of the word. So it's produced locally. It's produced uh, by artisans, by people who... Uh, incorporate the traditions. It's produced by people who care about ingredients, about where they come from. And uh, I, I think that those are really good traditions. And we're seeing that slow food movement catching on in the United States as well. How so? Where do we see it? What do we see? Well, where we see it is that now we're starting to have artisan producers in California of things like cheese uh, and other kinds of processed food, the uh, bread, artisan breads. Uh, I think you, you may not necessarily see it quite so obviously in Mendocino County, but if you go into the Bay Area, certainly where where food is uh, consumed with a little bit more passion maybe than than our, our simpler taste here in Mendocino County, you'll see that there are people that uh, care very much about this. The whole idea of seasonality is really important in the slow food movement as well. So we see people trying to to uh, think about the the seasons as they, they make their selections of food. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it tends to be in sort of an upper echelon cooking. So, you know, you're not going to see a slow food movement in, in uh, coffee shops. Unfortunately, it's going to be high-end restaurants. But the philosophy, will, will ha I think, is, is moving into the community fairly well. If somebody wants to get more information about the slow food movement or energy efficiency in food or community food security... Where should they look? Probably the Internet is a really good place to start it, just using a search engine and type any of those words, uh, and you'll be brought to to some of the, the national and international websites, which, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to repeat here on the show, but I just I, I strongly recommend that you go to your search engine, type in uh, community food security, uh, type in slow food movement, and I think you'll find uh, lots of reading material. Well, Glenn McGordy, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, um, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes. Well, um, I'm, I'm on sabbatical leave right now for a year, and I'm working on uh, A Grower's Guide to Mediterranean Wine Grapes, which is going to be a viticulture book. But I just started reading this book recently, The Origins and Ancient History of Wine, which is quite fascinating because wine has been with uh, man since the beginning of, of Western civilization, certainly. And uh, it's, it's quite a story as to how uh, wine moved around the Mediterranean and into northern Europe. And uh, there's no question it's part of our heritage uh, if, if you're of European descent. Well, Glenn McGordy, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It was a pleasure. 
Glenn McGordy is the Wine Growing and Plant Science Advisor affiliated with the University of California Extension in Lake and Mendocino counties here in Northern California. If you are further interested in food security, energy efficient food, and the slow food movement, type in those categories on any internet search engine for links to articles. The book Glenn McGordy recommends is The Origins and Ancient History of Wine by Patrick McGovern. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.